There's a book with, I think, a very helpful title. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small. It's about unhealthy relationships where we lean on and enable each other and create codependency with each other and we look to each other to fill parts of our lives um, and our moods kind of swing up and down based on how our relationship's going or based on the mood of the other person. And so think of the roller coaster of life when life is about people being big. Think of how many problems you face today, worries and fears and anxieties, struggles and doubts come because the people in your life have gotten too big. The circumstances in your life have gotten too big. The stuff that's around you, the stuff that you see, the stuff that you feel are big. And when that happens, God gets very small in your heart, very small in your mind. And people consume you and God does not. Circumstances consume us and God does not. And think about how unstable life is when people are big. Think how unstable life is when my mood is attached to the mood of the person coming home from work to me. Or the mood of my boss walking in tomorrow morning. Or the mood of my coworkers. Or the pressures of my circumstances. Life is very unstable. It's a roller coaster we ride. But that's your natural heart's bent. And I wish I could say it was yours and not mine. That's my natural heart's bent. We are bent towards what we see and what we feel like. We can see that God is, you know, we we can't see him in the same way. And so what we see feels so big and what we experience feels so big. And so what I want to ask God to do over the course of this month is to reverse that in our hearts. To reset our hearts to where people aren't big, God is big. And so in November, what we're going to be looking at is thankful for God's majesty. Thankful for God's godness. Thankful for the bigness and the vastness and the size and the, and the overwhelmingness of God. Because when God is big, your circumstances take their right place. When God is big, the people around you become small. They take their right place place when God is big because he is fixed and he is stable and he's made good promises to us and he's unmovable when God is big his promises are big and his promises are true and I don't have to ride the roller coaster anymore I can love people I can engage with people I can experience the frustrations of people while they're in their right place because God's big and they become small. And that's, that's what we're going to be looking at in November. And that's what I want to invite you to join in the journey of. I want to invite you on the journey, not just by being here, but I want to invite you on the journey of, with your hearts. From people being big to God being big. And maybe for you, the person that's the biggest is the person you stare, at the mirror, stare in the mirror at every day. And so I want you to join on a journey from you being big. To God being big. And you being small. I want us to revel in the God-centeredness of God. I want us to rejoice that God is all about God. Because when he is, the extension of that is his love and care for us as his people. 
And so let's go on that journey together. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 40. You can kind of work your your way there. In Isaiah chapter 40, um, there's two major sections in the book of Isaiah. And they're separated by a three or four chapter historical insert. And so it's prophecy, 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 history, mainly dealing with the invasion of the Assyrians who camp out at the feet of Jerusalem, who are ready to take over. And then God, with one angel, kills 185,000 people in one night. And so they tuck tail and run from the walls of Jerusalem. And it ends up in chapter uh, 39 with Hezekiah having this envoy come from Babylon and they tour all the treasuries of God's house and they tour the temple and that was kind of a big mistake. And so a prophet comes and Hezekiah, the nation that you just showed is going to take everything you just showed them and they're going to bring your people into exile. And so the first part of the book of Isaiah ends with exile is coming, plundering is coming, destruction is coming. And so it kind of becomes very important the way Isaiah chapter 40 opens up. God speaking to the prophet, comfort my people. Comfort my people. And so the whole second part of the book is here is God's comfort. Your judgment has come. Here is God's comfort. Your sin has been pardoned. Here is God's comfort. You've paid the price and now restoration is coming. Here is God's comfort. I've chosen you. Here is God's comfort. Uh, My promises will still remain. Here is God's comfort. And so that's Isaiah chapter 40 and following, really. In chapter 41, I'm sovereign over the nations. I set up the guy that's kind of running over the earth, taking over. That's me. Like, I I gave him this ability. But I want to affirm to you, I've still chosen you. I want to affirm to you that my promises to secure you are still in place. Which leads to chapter 42, which is the first of the, what's called, servant songs of Isaiah. Where this coming servant of the Lord that we know of as the Messiah, will come and restore salvation, will come and conquer enemies, will come and establish the covenant of God, will come and inherit the people as his right inheritance. And so, opening up, comfort my people, says your God. Speak to Jerusalem, her warfare is ended, and that her iniquity is pardoned. And so, what is the comfort of Isaiah 40? It is a saving comfort of God. I will deliver you. I will save you. I have pardoned your sin. But it's at that point things start to turn in a way that we don't expect. Because we're expecting, okay, my sins are forgiven. Let me hear the benefits of salvation. Let me hear God remind me of who I am. Let me hear God remind me of how he's going to do this. And that's not what God does to comfort his people. What does God do to comfort his people? He spends an entire chapter, here's who I am. The nations look insurmountable. They're dust to me. The biggest thing you can possibly comprehend with your mind is something that I could cup like a sippy cup in my hand. And the comfort of God is your salvation, but the comfort of God in your salvation is not all the benefits that it gives you. It is the greatness of the God who's promised it, is the greatness of the God who has secured it so that it is not movable and it's not under threat no matter what it is you face in this life. No matter what the circumstances around the nation are and no matter what the circumstances around the church or life are, the God who spoke it and the greatness of that God is the God who guarantees it and the greatness of that God guarantees the word that was spoken. And that's Isaiah. Isaiah 40. 
The promise of salvation met with the full faith and credit of the God who created all things. So that's what we're looking at. Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to focus on uh, 3 through 20 and get as far as we get. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up onto a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend to his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands as fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing. Emptiness. To whom then would you liken God? And what likeness will you compare him with? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold. And casts it for silver chains. He's too impover- he was too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will rot, will not rot, and he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Let's pray. Father, Father, comfort us, not with good circumstances. Comfort us not with Relationship stability only. Comfort us not with the job working out. Comfort us with a sovereign God who sits over eternity and sits over the universe and sits over the world and sits over the nations. Like there's so much dust on the ground before him. God, we're so prone to run from thing to thing and distraction to distraction. Don't let us. Let us be what we sung, lost in wonder. Oh, how long it's been since we were lost in wonder. 
Would you begin this month, this season of gratitude, calling us again to be lost in the wonder of who you are? God, would you do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So God's majestic glory will be seen by all. God's majestic glory will be seen by all. I want to walk quickly through the verses uh, leading up to verse 9 because that's where we're going to kind of camp out. But in verses 3 through 4, the call is this. Prepare the way for God, right? So prepare the way for our Lord, a highway for the Lord. And so he goes into some descriptions, and the descriptions are, are kind of an illustration from the ancient world where they would prepare the roads. And so when an emperor was coming, or when a king was coming, or when a very important person was coming, or maybe it was a processional for one of their big idols was coming, they would go out onto the dirt roads. And right, you're, in, you're in Statesboro, you've seen dirt roads, right? They, they have these ruts that wear into them, and then the grader that fixes them makes them real bumpy, and so it's real bumpy, and there's ruts, and there's a little, mountain in, a little mound in between. That's what he's saying is when this happens, when important people are coming, and in this case, when God is coming, people are going to go out there with their shovels, and they're going to go out with their instruments, and they're going to scrape that middle hump out and level it out into the ruts, and they're going to make it as straight as possible. They're going to make it as smooth as possible. They're going to prepare the way for the Lord. They're going to prepare the road for him to go down so that it's not bumpy, and it's not rut-filled, and it's, it's completely as smooth as possible. Now, this is the same imagery that gets used later when it's talking about bringing the exiles from the corners of the earth back into Jerusalem in their return. But that's not what it's talking about here. What it's talking about here is prepare the way for the appearing of God. Well, he's not going to take a road back. He's not walking a road to get here. So here's what the commentators and, and I agree with as I've been studying it. Here's what I think it's saying. Prepare yourself to see the glory of God. And don't just prepare yourself because it's not an individualistic thing in the Old Testament or in the Bible. Prepare yourselves as a nation. Prepare yourselves as a people. The glory of God is coming and you are going to behold it with your eyes. Prepare yourself. That's a terrifying thought. Because the glory of God kills people when they see it. But when it's His people prepared for it, the glory of God comforts people when they see it. And so the call on the nation is prepare yourselves for the coming of God. Prepare yourselves to behold the glory of God. And so in verse 5, what do, that's what we're preparing for. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and he will be seen by all flesh. Right? The glory of God will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. How do we know? Because God said so. The mouth of the Lord guaranteed that it was going to be so. And so what are we preparing for? Not the general glory, the heavens declare the glory of God. Not the general glory that we get to see. But there is a specific revealing of God himself that will be direct, that will be physically encountered, and it will be universally encountered by all mankind. They will gaze on glory. And it will slay them. But for you, my people, you will gaze on my glory and it will be the greatest comfort you can ever possibly imagine. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And then he goes into that next section which kind of contrasts the bigness of God and contrasts the preparation of God's people with those who are unprepared. Right? And it talks about... 
in, in that section, it talks about the, the all flesh is grass and the beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass wither and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord comes onto it. People are frail. People are temporary. People are weak. And when you get them together in huge, massive nations with great militaries, people are frail. People are temporary. People are weak. And the unprepared, those who are not ready to encounter the glory of God because they are His covenant people, are like grass. And they will wither under the breath of God who created everything by the word of His power. And they will fade with all of their beauty when the breath of the Lord breathes over them. Isaiah 35, 2 talks about it this way. Rejoice with joy in singing. We shall all see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And so there's the temporary humanity. There's frail humanity. There's weak humanity. And there, there's the word of God that abides forever. And so my saving promises will abide forever. My saving promises are not under threat by the nations. My saving promises and the good word of the good news that I have given you is not under threat because the nation will be captured and the nation will be freed. Nothing challenges the word I've spoken. It will endure forever. It is secure. And then he continues on. And begins to get where we're going to focus. In verse 9, go up on a high mountain. And so what he's saying is, let the nation come and be my spokesman. Let the nation come and be my herald. And I want them to be fearless. I want them to be bold. I want them to be loud with one central message. What is it? What is the message of comfort? What is the message to be declared to the nation? Behold your God, stare at your God again. Don't give him passing glances while you stare at the world. Don't give him passing glances while you're consumed with your marriage. Don't give him passing glances while you become a workaholic for the stuff this world can provide you. Stare at your God again. That's the message of comfort. That's the message of deliverance. That's the message that an anemic church needs because we've been so captured in our gaze by our stinking smartphones that we don't take time to stare at God anymore. Behold your God, people. Behold your God, Chris. Say it loudly. Say it fearlessly. Say it boldly because the only comfort people have is the comfort of beholding, staring again at God. So let's look at God this month. Let's look at God again. The one who's promised his bigness, his character, his greatness, his incomparability. Stare at him because that's the guarantee his promises will come and be finalized and be eternal for us. So let's look at it. The first point of this as we go 9 through 12 behold the majesty of god's greatness and compassion behold the majesty of god's greatness and compassion some of y'all are lebron people right hashtag goat some of us are old enough to remember a different one mj sorry hashtag goat some of y'all gonna hate this one tom brady hate him but he wins Hashtag goat. In every sport, in every, in musical genres and empires, there are people 
that are enter into the conversation that nobody else is a part of or that very, very select elite few are part of. You know, like, what is a hashtag goat? Greatest of all time. There is a slim group of people in every sport that can even possibly be considered greatest of all time, to be part of that conversation. And what makes them part of that conversation? They are that much better than everybody else around them. They are that much better than anybody that takes the court beside them. They are that much better than anybody that lines up against them. And when the time comes, they can put their teams on their back and they can carry their team, will their teams into victory. And they enter this different level, greatest of all time conversation. I was listening, there's a certain SEC football game yesterday, Alabama and LSU. And, and the guy was like making this observation. Alabama carries themselves with an arrogance that I've only seen in three other teams in college football history. He's like, he's like exactly what I'm looking at here. And he's saying, he's like, they have this arrogance. Like, you can't beat us. And they walk onto the field every single week. You can't beat us. And they certainly are in the conversation for greatest of all time. With like some USC from a bygone era. There used to be Miami Hurricanes that had this way, way back in the day. Uh, and FSU way back in the day where they had dynasties considered greatest of all times. And I don't think any of this is bad, right? You are made, you are made to admire greatness. You are made to be in awe of things that transcend and that are above everything else. And, and it's this little glimmer. Unfortunately, it becomes consuming, but it's just this little glimmer, this little sliver compared to the one who stands outside of time over eternity. Compared to the one that speaks a word and all that, nothing, from nothing, everything that you see came into being. Who flings out the trillions of miles of space like it's a curtain that he threw up on the wall. You were made to admire greatness. You were made to be in awe of something. And that little greatest of all times conversations points to one great above all times, greatest of all times, God. And he's who you are made to be in awe of. He's who you're made to have consuming conversations about. And let's take a look at him. Behold the majesty of God's greatness and his compassion. You were made to be worshipped. Or you were made to worship. And in worshipping, to find the God you worship stoop down to comfort you. That's the greatest of all times. That's the holy swagger that our God walks with. He will be worshipped. And when he is worshipped, he will care for you. Let's look at it. And so as we're looking in verse 9, the central message of this section, behold your God, here's what your God is like, here's who your God is. You are going to gaze on God in this section. You're going to see what God is like in this section. You're going to see what God has accomplished in this section. But you're not going to just glance at it, I hope. You're going to behold it. And he opens up with two broad categories of his greatness, of his majesty that's meant to be beheld. And the first part of that is his power, his greatness, his sovereign rule over everything you can possibly imagine. And the second part is his shepherding 
care over his people. All right, so you see that in, in verses 10 and 11. The Lord comes with might. Like, I'm trying to come up with the words to say God has this great power and he's going to come with power. And that just falls so far short. Right? We've seen images of nuclear bombs get let off. And, you know, there's an estimation that if, if a bomb were set off in the right place, a couple of million people would be impacted or, or killed by it. Man, that's huge. That's devastating. That's terrifying. But there's a God with less than a word could dissolve humanity into nothing. And that's it. He comes with might. And then look at that. The arm of the Lord will rule for him. And so when we're looking at his power, we're also looking at his rule. And God sovereignly rules the nations. And you're thinking, there are some really powerful nations out there. Do you know the military stockpile that America has? His arm rules for him. Do you know China has billions of people? And they have this massive standing army? And his arm rules for him. But he doesn't just rule nations, he rules history. Like, he orchestrates history from start to finish, including the sinful choices of humanity and the redeemed choices of humanity to do exactly what he wants at exactly the time he wants it so that we sit here right now and the 7.5 billion people on earth sit right where they are right now because he orchestrates every single detail of history. His arm rules for him. And I think beyond our ability to comprehend He doesn't just sovereignly rule history to the smallest detail of the smallest decisions of the smallest people to the greatest one. He rules the nations. He doesn't just rule the history of the nations. He rules creation. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. This is God. Behold your God. His arm will rule for him. But look what else his arm will do. I think it's interesting the same word gets used. In the next verse, his arm will rule for him. He will sovereignly reign over all things. He will defeat his enemies. He will rescue his people. And he will shepherd them. And he will gather them in his arms. The arm that rules nations and eternal history are the same arms that he gathers you up like a little lamb and draws you into his chest to carry you. He will be like a shepherd who will tend, he will feed, he will care for. He is like a shepherd who when he finds weak and vulnerable, he will gather them up and bring them all the closer and carry them along the way. He is like a shepherd who will lead his people. Now think of that. Think of that dichotomy in these verses. Think about the one who rules everything down to the smallest molecule and atom of creation. Still stooping down to pick you up and hold you close to himself. Behold your God. And so the Lord comes with might. His arm rules for him. And he is a sovereign king who is also a shepherd. And then we enter the rest of this section that's marked out by questions, rhetorical questions that flow through the rest of the section. And he, and he uses this as a device. He uses this as a, a literary device to accomplish a purpose. The first one is just kind of order his material. But I think the main purpose is this. And the main purpose you need to hear is this. He asks you questions. He asks the readers of the Old Testament questions. He asks you questions and me questions. Because here's what he wants you to evaluate in your life. What you functionally believe about God, does it line up with what God says about God? 
What you functionally believe in fear and doubt. What you functionally believe when you live and do your relationships. How does it line up with what God has said? And who God has said that he is. And so he's asking questions because he wants you to think about what you believe in your darkest moments. What you believe in your painful circumstances versus what he has said. And he's going to ask questions forcing you to evaluate that. And he's also asking these questions so that you can see there is nothing that can compare. Nothing that can even come close to registering a comparison with who God is and what he is like. And so would you let these questions do that for you? Would you let these questions expose functional beliefs in your life? Especially functional beliefs when things are darker and when things are harder. Would you let him expose functional things in your life that you believe that don't line up with who he is? So let's look at it. He asks a set of questions. The first one dealing with his greatness. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? He's going to go from there. I want you to think about the biggest things in all of creation for a second. I want you to place yourself on the edge of the ocean. Not even just the gulf. I'm talking about the ocean. I want you to place yourself staring out at it. You know what you're looking at? Water that goes almost six miles deep in places. I'm going to get this number right because I don't even know how to pronounce it, much less tell you what it is. You are staring at 352 quintillion gallons. You're like, I don't know what that is either. 352 with 30 zeros behind it. That's how many gallons of water you're looking at. That's vast. I mean, you stare and you can't even comprehend where the other side of that water goes. And you know what it says about God? It's like a sippy cup. He measures the water in the hollows of his hands. It's like, you know, when you used to play sports and you'd like stick your hands under the hose and like hold this up. And like those oceans that you can't comprehend one side to the other of for God. Yeah, it's just like cupping his hands to take a sip. Behold your God. And then he goes on and he talks about, well, the heavens, right? The heavens, that's pretty vast. You go outside and in Statesboro, you can see it. In Atlanta, you can't. You can see all these things called stars. The sun being, I don't know, 92 or so million miles away. But you know what the closest one to that is? Let's think about just how big space is for a second. Something like 4.2 light years. Trillions, four and a quarter, roughly trillions of miles away. Nearest star ish right and there's a hundred billion of the things trillions of miles apart you cannot comprehend the depths of space you can't comprehend the nearest star what about god you know that little wooden thing you send your kids to elementary school with a one foot ruler a little metal edge to keep it straight He measures the heavens with an elementary school one-foot ruler. Behold your God. And it's not just that. Psalm 147 tells us he calls the stars out. Roughly. Yeah, they're just guessing, I think. But they say it. A hundred billion stars. You know what the the Bible says? He calls them out and he knows all their names. A hundred billion glowing pieces of gas that God cares and knows their name. Behold your God. 
And then he goes on, the dust of the earth. Well, just think, like you're saying that same beach. All this sand, every grain of sand that fills up the ocean and fills up the bottoms of the ocean, all the dust on the tops of the mountains and on the dirt roads of the earth and in the deserts of the earth and put it all together. It's like a little science beaker to God. Ah, there's the earth. There's the dust of the earth. Behold your God. And the last step he takes is the mountains. We go to uh, Peru a time or two a year, and we go into the Andes. We drive about three hours in. And when you're standing there at 10,000 feet, as far as you can look in every single direction, you see mountains and mountains and mountains and mountains. And as far as you can imagine from where you are standing, there is nothing but mountains. If you were to walk in every direction as far as you could. Mountains. 4,500 miles of Andes Mountains. Thousands of feet tall, and at any one of them you're standing, and they dwarf you. And on the earth, there's like a million mountains. But what about the God? These, one of them is, keeps us in awe. One little place within the middle of them keeps us in awe. And what about God? The Weight Watcher scale comes out. Ah, there are the mountains. Maybe they should lose some weight. Right? The mountains and the hills are in a balance to him. Behold your God. Behold your God. And so when you are fearful, when you are worrying, when you are anxious, when you don't know what's going to happen next, when you don't know if God's even there or God even cares, when that is true, when you're overwhelmed by political headlines, thank the Lord, they're going to be gone soon. Hopefully. Right? I'm ready for Tuesday to be done. Just saying. I don't want any more mailers. I don't want any more phone calls. Don't want any more bomb throwing. I just, can we just chill out for a minute? Right? And so when you're overwhelmed by your political headlines, or when you're overwhelmed by what's going on in your family, the answer is not going to be a bigger nest egg. The answer is not going to be the results of the election comes Wednesday morning. The answer is not going to be your spouse. And the answer is not going to be getting a spouse. The answer is not going to be your kids performing better, behaving better, achieving more, finding stability or friends. That's not the answer. What's the answer for our doubt, fear, worry, anxiety, overwhelmedness? There is a big and sovereign God who rules the nations like he's ruling a cloud of dust. That's the answer. Who takes the biggest thing you can imagine. And it's like a sippy cup to him. That's the answer. So if you think about what does it take? Or what what could possibly hold back something from happening? I think there's three things. And they're answered in this text. The first one is a lack of ability. There's a lot of things around my house I just can't do. I can't frame things. I can, I can change like a wall switch, but I couldn't run a wire anywhere. At least you wouldn't want me to run a wire anywhere and it'd be hidden. Right? I just can't do it. There's a lot of things I don't have power over. And so with the best of intentions, I want to fix things. With the best of intentions, I want to solve the problems. With the best of intentions, I want to solve problems at church or in my family or in my home. And I want to fix stuff. But I just lack power and ability so many times. 
That is not the case with God. There's a sippy cup of oceans to prove it. He does not lack ability. He does not lack power. What else could happen? Maybe a miscalculation. You mismeasure things. You come up with a great plan, but there was a blind spot in it. You come up with a great plan. People didn't respond the way you think they should have. People changed the equation, and so you just missed something. You lacked some understanding, some knowledge. That's the next section. That's not a problem with God. Who knows all things past, present, and future, and just how you can't comprehend space or the oceans, you cannot possibly comprehend the perfect wisdom of God to know all things and do all things exactly right. And so he does not lack wisdom. He does not lack knowledge. He does not lack power. And then lastly, the only other thing that could stop you is care. He doesn't care. Right? And so another thing that can keep you from solving problems, you just don't care about that problem. You just don't care about solving it. A total lack of concern, a total lack of love. Is that God? No. He is like a shepherd who takes the most vulnerable and weak, gathers them up and pulls them tight to himself. Who with shepherdly loving care tends to and leads and, and guides his people. And so God's perfect power is met with perfect wisdom who is met with perfect love. And so there is not one promise that he will fail to accomplish. That is how you can fight worry. That is how you can pull out of darkness into what is true. That is how you can walk through painful circumstances or walk through confusing times or walk through overwhelming times. Is because what is true about God is his power is unfailing, his love is unfailing, and his wisdom did not mess it up. He didn't get it wrong. You don't find yourself where you are because God missed a step. Behold the majesty of God's greatness and compassion, and then quickly behold the majesty of God's wisdom and God's justice. We're probably not going to get through this point either. That's okay, though, because we're going to be in Isaiah like all month long. Uh, but let me just point out a few things and then we're going to come back to it. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord and what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him to understand? Struggling circumstances, scary circumstances, painful circumstances. The question you ask yourself and the question I ask myself, did God mess up? Did God miss something? In my confusion and sorrow, does God really know what he is doing? And it's something you would not ask mentally, but what you would ask experientially in your challenge and in your pain and in your struggle. Did God miss something? Did God get this one right? Does God know where I am? And his answer to this perfect, majestic wisdom of God and justice of God is who has measured the spirit of the Lord. You cannot comprehend the oceans and you cannot comprehend the mountains and you cannot comprehend the space or, or, or the limits of space. How much more can you not comprehend the mind of the one who created all those things? John Piper has a quote that I, that I cling to a lot of times. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. And I can't tell you how many times I've quoted that to myself because what it reminds me of is I am so limited in my knowledge of God's wisdom and the plan God is working out for my life and the plan God is working out from my life to everybody that is touched by my life that I have no comprehension of what God's really up to. I may get a little lesson or two out of the deal, but I have no clue what the infinite wisdom of God is up to in the world. 
you know the Bible says before you have a word, he knows them. Before you have a thought, while your thoughts are still far off, he knows them. That's pretty amazing to think about. But let's blow our minds a little bit. There's 7.5 billion us's on the planet. He doesn't just know your words while they're a long way away. He doesn't just know your thoughts. He doesn't just know the number of days that are allotted for you written in the book of God. He doesn't just know yours. He knows 7.5 billion yourses. 7.5 billion words before they ever happen. 7.5 billion thoughts before they ever happen. 7.5 billion number of lifespans of humanity before they ever happen. Behold your God. Let's look at a few practical things and we'll loop back to his wisdom next week. The first one is be comforted. Be comforted. God's saving, God's sanctifying, God's loving purposes in your life are not threatened by the circumstances you're going through right now. They're not threatened by the relationship challenges you're having right now. They're not threatened by the job security that you have or don't have right now. Not one of the good saving purposes of God, the good life-shaping purposes of God are under any threat right now. Don't be comforted because the circumstances are going to work out well. Eternally they will, by the way. Be comforted by the God who has declared promises over your life that cannot be challenged. Because that's the thing that's going to hold when circumstances don't go right. Be comforted. Secondly, be in awe. We spend far too little time in creation. We just be in awe. What does it take to get your soul lost in awe? When was the last time you can say, I experienced wonder? It's not going to come on a TV screen. You are not going to find wonder in an iPhone. No matter how many amazing pictures it takes. You're going to find wonder by staring and beholding God. You're going to find wonder by staring at the heavens that declare His glory. You're going to find wonder as you gaze on what is so far terrifying and so more vast than your mind can comprehend. That's where wonder will be found. And it's not in the mountains, it's in who made the mountains and who the mountains point to. Place yourself in a position to be in awe again. That's what we want November to be about. Thanksgiving for majesty. Thanksgiving for the God-centeredness of God. Thanksgiving for the God, the Godness of God. And then the other one, be confident. God knows what he's doing. It may be a painful process. God knows what he's doing. He didn't forget you. He didn't forget to love you. He didn't miscalculate the directions where he has to disassemble and reassemble the crib like we do. God knows what he's doing. You can be confident in that. It may not feel like it. It may not look like it. And that's where these questions force us to say, this is what I'm believing in the moment, but this is what is true. And we can be confident. And if we are all these things, it will lead us to serve the people around us who do not know this God, who do not know this comfort, who do not have a, who have a soul that is so shriveled, there is no all there. And you can serve them. And you can invite them 
to behold your God in saving ways. Servants share with two. Behold your God, he's greater than you can imagine. Behold your God, his purposes are richer and better than you can possibly imagine. Behold your God so that he is seen as big as he is. And everything else can be small and in its right place. Let's pray. Father, our words to describe you are so small. Our vocabulary is so limited. And so I pray your spirit would speak. Your spirit would show just a little more of how big and great and awesome and glorious and majestic and beautiful and wonderful you are. That you would, by your spirit, force an awe because we taste a little more of you. That he would force an awe because we are beholding the glory of the Lord. That he would do that, Father. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.